0: Welcome to a special two-part edition of Radio Cade. We'll be discussing COVID-19 and ventilators. In part one, we visit with Dr. Sam Lampotang, and in part two, we visit with Dr. Richard Milker. We hope you enjoy the program. Inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Welcome to a special episode of Radio Cade. I'm your host, James Virgilio. Today, we're going to be covering mechanical ventilation and its effect on the COVID-19 crisis. Mechanical ventilation is a life-saving therapy that is used extensively in modern intensive care units. The origins of modern mechanical ventilation can be traced back five centuries ago to the seminal work of Andreas Vesalius, really the founder of modern human anatomy. My guest today is Dr. Sem Lampotang. He is the Joachim S. Gravenstein Professor of Anesthesiology at UF Health and the Director of the Center for Safety Simulation and Advanced Learning Technologies. Dr. Lampotang, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, your background is extensive, you have a PhD in engineering. You spent a lot of time dealing with patient safety, especially on the anesthesiology side. But today you've been working extensively on a mechanical ventilator that is interesting for a lot of reasons. Tell us a bit about how this project came to be.
1: If you go way back like 30 years ago, what we are building today, I actually designed 30 years ago together with two Mm. respiratory therapists, Michael Banner and Paul Blanche at the University of Florida. And our design was actually commercialized and used on patients in the United States by a Swiss company. The ventilator was called Hamilton Max. And what we're building today is essentially the Hamilton Max, but with parts from hardware stores. The reason we decided to use hardware store parts From my work three decades ago with ventilator companies, we still have insider information in a good way about what's going on. So three, four weeks ago, before everybody else knew, we already knew that there would be no parts traditionally used to build ventilators. That's a problem GM is facing right now as they try to build ventilators. So when we were approached to design one to address that expected shortfall of ventilators, if we truly need a million Then the design started with how do you build it if your traditional supply chain is no longer available? And that's when the idea of going to Home Depot and Ace and Lowe's came into being.
0: And your ventilator itself is an interesting concept. You are open sourcing it, what essentially means you put the design out there into the public arena and anyone is able to take a look at this and improve it as necessary. We often see this done in the internet and things like that. How often is something open-sourced in the medical community?
1: It is quite common today with the COVID-19. So there are a lot of open-source ventilator projects going on. So we were among the first. A lot of open-source efforts spontaneously sprang up around the country. And also, I think, in the UK. I don't know whether it was common before that, but I can tell you now, currently in this crisis, it's quite common.
0: Now, I've seen a lot of studies back in the mid-2000s that had suggested that we did not have enough ventilators in the case of a surge event, which COVID-19 certainly is a surge event. However, those same studies argued that the forty dollars to $50,000 ventilators that exist in the ICU would not be appropriate to basically hold on reserve based upon daily usage. But instead, they suggested a combination of something more like you were creating or something that could be utilized. Why is it that those academic studies just went unheeded? that in reality, we really didn't attempt to address maybe a middle ground, a less intensive ventilator? Why do you think it is that that's been the case?
1: Well, it's, uh, a lot of it is mission creep, and also a lot of it is there's a tendency to treat to the highest need. So when you order a ventilator, you want to make sure it will meet those patients who have really, really dire needs. So that's a tendency. It's just like, why do we not drive small cars? Why do we drive bigger cars? Because we can. And so hospitals also want to make sure they can treat the sickest patient. So they usually order the Cadillacs instead of the base models.
0: That's one reason, right? And obviously it would be cost inefficient to stockpile a lot of $50,000 ventilators that may not get used, but there is this other side we're in now where we know that a virus could happen that causes this situation. And and you and I, before the show, were talking about something that's very interesting. So your design has been working now for a week straight. Your ventilator has been working as you wanted Mm. it to for one week straight, right? But you were telling me that's Mm. not enough yet. And why is that?
1: The reason it's not enough at one week nonstop running, it's called an endurance testing, is the data from Italy and China indicates that worst case scenario, a patient needs ventilatory support, meaning they need to be on a ventilator for up to three weeks nonstop. So currently, all I can say with confidence is that this ventilator will run for a week nonstop because I have not run it for another two weeks. But my dilemma and my ethical dilemma as an engineer, a professional engineer is if, let's say in a week from now, when I'm two weeks into endurance testing, and by the way, there's more than one ventilator, so we have three ventilators undergoing endurance testing right now. But if in two weeks from now, I'm at two weeks of endurance testing, but I've not completed my three weeks, and the doctors are being faced with a stark choice of you have a ventilator, you don't, then do we start building and giving them to the doctors? and say, trust us, even though we have not finished the testing. Because the proper engineering practice is to finish the testing first and then deliver. One of the benefits of working at the University of Florida is it has a lot of faculty with expertise. So I talked to an ethicist when I was faced with that dilemma. I called an ethicist who I know, and I said, this is my dilemma. And it was very helpful because he told me, in his opinion, if in a week from now we have not finished, but the need is there, You are defensible, ethical ground to release, even though your testing is not finished, because at least you did so.
0: Right. And what's the alternative? Patient XYZ, you have no ventilator at all. We're going to have to now make a triage decision to let someone else on this ventilator and you don't get one versus your solution, which is this may not work for three weeks, but also it may work for three weeks.
1: Correct. But at that point, we would know it's been working for two weeks. So that's why then, ethically, it's a bit more defensible because we did as much as we could until the virus overtook our testing, right?
0: Creating an emergency situation where then innovation, in this case, allows for at least an opportunity, as you're mentioning, to improve it. Now, the FDA gets talked about a lot in crises like these. Are they helpful? Are they harmful? As far as what the FDA has been doing, again, you mentioned before the show, they've been relaxing some restrictions. We've seen this in the news. Do we feel like we're in a spot where what you said would be possible, where the FDA would allow in an emergency situation, people to have to try some of these ventilators that have been obviously operating for a while? Or do we think that they wouldn't be allowed into the system in an event like that?
1: The FDA has been flexible. My understanding but this is third hand, I have no way to know whether that's true or not. They have been approving devices that are specific to the COVID crisis already. So some devices have already been approved under this what's called the EUA, Emergency Use Authorization, which has a reduced set of requirements. And the FDA has been also flexible in this sense. So they've relaxed the rules. And now if our ventilator becomes approved, we intend to file in a week from now, so around April 10th. If we are approved, the approval is only while the crisis lasts. The moment that the COVID-19 is no longer a pandemic, our approval from FDA would lapse immediately. So I thought that was also very creative from the FDA. And so they've been flexible and it's also helped us to do due diligence on our testing because by following the FDA's standards, we can make sure A, whether they are relevant to the situation and B, how to meet them and then give ourselves an added measure of confidence that we are producing a safe design.
0: Now let's talk about your design in general. So it seems like ventilators range from as cheap as $5,000 to as expensive as $50,000. One of the issues with the Cadillac ventilators, as you mentioned, is that you have staffing concerns as well. Only so many people are trained to operate those. I'm imagining that your ventilator does not require extensive training to have someone operate it. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. There's only three settings, so it will not be complicated. One setting is, we call it tidal volume. How much gas do you want to flow into the patient's lungs with each breath? A small breath or a big breath or something in between? The second one is what we call the breathing frequency. How often do you want this patient to breathe? 10 times a minute, 15, 20, 25, 30. And then the next one is how long, how much longer is exhalation compared to the inhalation? And it's a ratio. So it's one to two, one to one, or one to three. That's it. That's the ventilator.
0: And so it's much simpler. To give me a difference, someone who knows really nothing about ventilators, How much less effective would this be in a serious case? Someone's in the ICU, they have a serious case. Would your ventilator be able to get 60%, 80% of the way towards the Cadillac one? Or is there a big, big gap between what both of them do?
1: I think it would get to 60%, and I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. And what it would not do, you may have heard this term when reading about ventilators. It's called weaning. Just like you wean a baby from breast milk to something else. So weaning means if a patient has been on the ventilator a long time, they may become dependent. And now you have to slowly wean them from the ventilator. So our ventilator will not have weaning capabilities. That's what the big Cadillac ventilators have. So instead of forcing the lung each time into the patient because they can't breathe, then they start saying, okay, I'm going to wait a bit. Let's see whether the patient can take a breath on his own or her own. And then if they can, they gradually step back and let the patient do more and more spontaneous breaths until finally the the patient is breathing on their own and then they get removed off the ventilator. We don't have that capability.
0: Okay, and that's probably needed in the most serious cases, right? So in a mid-level case, yours would be able to be sufficient, but if you get a really serious one, maybe not so much, and that allows then the hospital to get some flexibility with how they're treating patients. It gives them scalability with who gets what. Right.
1: So our, our ventilator is a crisis ventilator, to be clear. So it's really a survival. We're not trying to wean people. We're trying to prevent them from dying because there's no ventilator.
0: And how difficult was it to build something like this? I know you're using like Lowe's and Home Depot and normal parts that I could go and purchase right now to do this. How difficult was it to create this design because you did it so quickly?
1: The design was a paper design until our lead engineer, David Liz, in our lab did a run on a Saturday, which was five days into the project because we were doing a lot of paper designs, lining up things. And then he ran to Home Depot and acquired a lot of parts and then went back to his garage and put something together. And then he FaceTimed me. I looked at it. I asked him to do some adjustments. And then I was satisfied it worked. And we put it up on the web immediately. Like an hour later, it was on the web. And when we put it on the web, a lot of people saw it and then we were able to convince a colleague of mine who was initially a bit skeptical, and that's Dr. Gibby. He's an anesthesiologist who is retired, but also an electrical engineer. And again, that's the open source concept. He's also a ham radio operator, so he brought in all his ham radio buddies, and they've been tremendously helpful with the electronics and the software. And one of them was actually the ham operator person is a genius from Bangalore, India. So he's been tremendously helpful. And now we're happy that our design is helping him start creating ventilators in India for his country.
0: And that's something to think about in life. I like to think about doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And how do we love our neighbors? And and obviously in the U.S., we're a very wealthy country. We're fortunate to be able to have the medical resources we have at the top end. And if you're looking at a lot of developing countries, they don't have a lot of those Cadillac ventilators. They don't have a lot of ventilators at all. Your solution, as you just mentioned, is something that can be downloaded on the internet with the open source. Someone can take that. They can build that. They can use that. How expensive is it for someone to build your ventilator? I see this on the internet and I live in India. What does it cost me to build one of these ventilators?
1: So I mentioned earlier, our design, it's actually a very specific meaning. It's called open architecture. Open architecture means it's a design that people can alter. Because we don't know that the part from Home Depot we use in Gainesville is available in India, or for that matter in New York. A gentleman in New York is worried about his state, he's building one, he went to Home Depot, he couldn't find some of the parts. So then the idea is, as long as we specify the part very clearly, then you should be able to find a substitute. And that's what happened actually in Mauritius yesterday. Mauritius is where I was born and grew up, in the Indian Ocean, and they already have a ventilator built with the parts that were available locally. And one of the other ways that this ventilator was designed, it was designed on the assumption that transportation would come to a grind. There would be no transportation because of the pandemic. And I was reminded of that because I was texting the engineer in Mauritius building it. He said, we don't have Arduinos, which is the computer running our ventilator. I said, well, you can order it readily on Amazon or Alibaba. And he goes, there are no flights coming in. The island is on lockdown for two weeks. And that was exactly how we designed it, that we designed, A, that traditional parts would not be available and B, transportation would be disrupted. So then he did what he's supposed to do. He went and looked for a local equivalent that was available, substituted it. And then today he uploaded a video on our website. And you can see the ventilator from Mauritius Sernin. That's an amazing
0: story. You've talked during your creation story about how many people, how many innovators and creative people it takes to have this idea, the power of what you just mentioned of opening your idea to others so that it can be quickly and nimbly changed and altered depending on the environment, the foresight that you had to recognize that if this surge event does happen, people aren't going to be able to acquire things in the normal means you just mentioned. So the person you just spoke of, what did it cost them to build this ventilator? Is this two or $3,000 venture? Is it a $30 venture? what does it cost to get one of these up and running?
1: I don't know. I look at their design. They need a test lung. So I just talked to my lead engineer this morning. So a test lung is a piece of instrument that simulates a lung of a patient, and that's how you're able to test that your ventilator is built to spec, but they don't have it in Mauritius and probably in India. So I just put something and it's being uploaded to the web so that everybody can say, okay, are we going to do not only the mm-hmm. ventilator, We're going to home-build a test line so that we can test that our ventilator is built to specifications.
0: Okay. And the cost here in Gainesville, when you're making one of these, what does it cost you to do it here?
1: It's less than $300. And actually, our thinking now has evolved as we're getting ready to go to the FDA so that we don't have to meet all the FDA's requirement for contamination from one patient to the patient that uses the ventilator next. The disposable part is $98 from Home Depot total. So the idea is after a patient has used it for up to three weeks, rather than try to sterilize it and meet the FDA requirements for design for sterilization, we would just throw the whole thing away and, and bring another one in. Because at $98, that's like an expensive meal, right?
0: Right. right. No, it's remarkable. We anchored this show on the thirty to fifty thousand dollar ventilator. You had mentioned you get just a guess, somewhere around sixty percent of the operational capacity and you're doing it for three hundred or so dollars here in the US. That's remarkable. And that is the productivity of creation innovation, especially during a crisis time. It's something that makes innovation, I think, so powerful. Obviously, what you're doing is so impactful, not just here, but abroad. I mean, imagining that these countries can now give themselves access to a possibly functioning solution during a crisis like this for something that is affordable, that is not going to bankrupt them, that is widely usable, is amazing. And of course, this is not the first time this has happened, right? Throughout human history, this is the response to crises. Is when people are allowed to be able to think creatively and put their solutions together. And what you're doing is simply remarkable. And to me, it's just further proof of the power of people working together, working together quickly and producing something that, again, is just to me incredible to think of the cost that you're producing this unit for given to the functionality that it has so far. Just really remarkable.
1: I want to clarify that the whole team behind us and also I would be remiss if I didn't mention the University of Florida. So, for example, an open source, you probably understand that the University of Florida has a lot of intellectual property like Gatorade that funds the university. So, generally, the university owns everything a faculty member like me designs. So I have a very good working relationship with the Office of Technology Licensing of the University of Florida because I have multiple patents. So very early, I involved the Office of Technology Licensing. I said, are you okay with this being open source? Because it goes against everything belongs to UF. So UF was also very supportive. They said, run with it. We need this. We are not going to worry because if we had said, oh, if you partner with us, UF has to have X percent of the whatever, this project would not happen. And I think my technology manager at UF, Hera Lichtenberg, was very supportive. He cleared it. And he said, yes, you have authorization to run with it, even though what you're doing is technically against the university's rules that they own everything that a faculty member designs.
0: And so that's a further example of flexibility. You mentioned the FDA, you mentioned UF. There's a relaxing the yeah. rules in a crisis, which is allowing for this innovation. And obviously here being at Decade, we're very familiar with, with what happens when universities are obviously working closely with inventors and employees. And a question that comes to mind, Dr. Lambo-Tang, is why do this? Why wouldn't you heard about this crisis, set aside what you're normally working on and do this? I'm certainly assuming it was not to make money, but rather to save lives. But what was your motivation to put aside everything else and to begin working on this?
1: Many things. First of all, like I told you, building a ventilator is not a challenge for me because I've built one as a graduate student at U.S. So there was none of that, can I do it? I knew I could do it. And then when you know you can do it and you know there's going to be a shortfall, depending on what news outlet you read, we have either 40, 60, or 80,000 ventilators in the U.S., and the projected need is one million. And it almost seems that my path, my journey through life brought me to this where it was like, you really need to do this because you know how to do this and you can't just stand on the sidelines. And the other thing is on a personal note, I'm a prostate cancer survivor. So I have been in a close shave and luckily I believe I'm cured. So it is also when you get a second chance at life, you sort of also say, why was I given that second chance? And you try to get some meaning to that second chance you were given. That's, that's powerful.
0: And obviously I think myself on behalf of everyone listening to this podcast is thankful for people like you that have the expertise to create these things, to save lives. And like you mentioned, I heard you say before, hopefully this is not something that's even needed, right? Hopefully we don't reach that level of surge. But if we do, obviously those and others working around the world to find these solutions is what allows us to save lives. And that's rather remarkable. One last question here. It's been a great discussion so far. This gets asked more than all the other questions. So we have to ask it. Looking back... Is there something we could have done to have been more prepared for this situation with regards to ventilators specifically? Should we have been stockpiling them? Should we have been developing what you're developing now 10 years ago? Or was this something that we had to go through to then ramp up our efforts to create these ventilators?
1: Yeah, that's a difficult question. My approach to this is we are where we are. There is no point in looking back because that is not helpful at this juncture. I would say, yes, we could have been better prepared, but we are where we are, and we have a shortfall. The thing that's been uplifting is really the the outpouring of support from all over the U.S. and the world and people volunteering to build and to build them out of their own funds and take it to their local hospitals. Now the main thing we need to do is clear the regulatory hurdles. But there is one more twist to this that I want to make sure people understand. If it comes to where those ventilators are needed and the FDA approval is not received, some hospitals are going to basically have a consent form that will tell the patient, this is a ventilator that has not been fully tested. Some testing has occurred, but it was not completed. Do you want to go on this ventilator do you consent to be put on that ventilator and that's falls under compassionate use and it's a relief to know that because to get fda clearance takes time and that's the alternative path if really our development effort and our fda regulatory effort gets overtaken by events that's the fallback position And then one last thing from my part is when this crisis is over, there are a lot of underdeveloped countries who lack ventilators perennially. And the hope is that this design being open source then would be continued to be used and maybe improved so that low resource countries can build their own ventilators safely.
0: And thank you so much for the time that you've given us and for the message you just put out there. Right. I think that's the goal. Definitely moving forward. As you said, I agree. We can look back into history and take lessons to learn to improve the future. And what you just said right there is certainly improving the future. How can we give ventilator access to people across the world? Because I'm sure this won't be the last virus or surge event we deal with. that deals with the respiratory system and certainly the work that you have done thus far and the work of others and something being open source, consistently able to be looked at and improved and tweaked and tested and changed very quickly because of its open source nature will allow for the fastest adaptation of getting to the best result. And I applaud you for your time, for your efforts, for what you and your team have done through the University of Florida, through all of your colleagues, putting time aside to do this. It certainly is again the power I think of individuals getting together and creating solutions to very complicated and difficult problems. I've enjoyed our discussion today, Dr. Lampotank. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Same here. Thank you so much. Stay well.
0: For Radio Cade, I'm James DeVirgilio. Radio Cade is
1: produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention located in Gainesville, Florida. This podcast episode's host was James DeVirgilio and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hartwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.